Ooh, now I'm so curious, you're driving me crazy. Hello friends, and welcome to part 11 of 119 Twin Peaks Podcast. Today we are talking about part 11 of Twin Peaks The Return. There's a fire where you are going. My name is Nick. I am joined, of course, by Dylan. Hi, Dylan. What's going on? Not much, man. Uh, We're about to talk about an episode that I'm really excited for um, because it's definitely one of my favorite episodes like top five top six material for me yeah this is way up there for me i definitely do i i think that this is punch for punch the funniest episode and in in a lot of ways that i don't i don't know like if i just showed this i think there's some points of this episode that if i showed it to someone who had never seen the show they would still find it funny there's some like serious setup punchline going on, but then there's some mm-hmm. other more subtle stuff that um, that you kind of have to be in the know about that I love too. So yeah, this is this is one of my one of my favorites, and I'm pumped to talk about it for sure. And before we get into it, we actually have a response to read. This response yes, is from. Our good buddy, Sean, who I'm sure you'll all remember from our discussion about part eight. Uh, Dylan, you uh, care to read it for us? I would love to. Hey, I was listening to part nine and you guys were discussing the decay of the town of Twin Peaks. From this idyllic place, even if it is a bit of a facade, to this town that seems riddled with drugs and crime. Within Twin Peaks, this obviously plays into the concept of the decay of the American dream as substances and capitalism eat away at these gilded ideals. But I couldn't help but feel a similarity in how Twin Peaks felt to something else. And it wasn't until listening to this discussion that I figured it out. Twin Peaks feels like the present-day Derry from Stephen King's It. Now, this is a Twin Peaks discussion, but it's interesting to consider how two very different works tackle the concept of an American town being corrupted by a triggering event that shines a light on the corrupted underbelly of the American dream. In both cases, isn't it the problem that hasn't uh sorry, isn't it that the problem hasn't silently existed there for a long time, but that being forced to confront the corruption that is the catalyst for this decay into the modern era? It seems that when confronted by the concept that their ideals and way of life are based on a false premise, they drift away the mores of their moral foundation and lean into corrupted behaviors. In Twin Peaks, it seems to be a lot of substance abuse, and in it, it is racism and prejudice. In both cases, it seems to be taking these failings and attempting to escape or scapegoat them onto other people. This is a really bleak outlook, and I'm not sure if there's a takeaway, but I'm going to attempt to create one just to justify this weird off-topic rambling. It seems that both works also provide, uh, sorry, it seems that both works also provide that reaching some sort of internal acceptance or transcendence is the only way to avoid falling into the nihilistic despair of the modern world, as revealed by embodiments of human suffering. I won't spoil the ending of it here, but there is a lot of reconciling childhood and events that occurs. In Twin Peaks, characters like Bobby or Ben Horn have confronted and overcome themselves and their past, giving them the power to confront this decay and overcome. As a counterpoint, 
Cooper is tragically unable to accept the past, and in trying to confront and defeat the past, he is consumed by it. But basically, I wrote in to say that Twin Peaks reminds me of Derry, and it's interesting to explore how this concept of a decaying town is expressed and the differences and similarities that come out of that exploration. Love the show. Keep up the great work. Sean. Wow. Thank you, Sean. That was a really cool, um, really cool comparison to draw. And I've never, I haven't read it. Uh, I've seen the movie, the original, uh, like made for TV movie. And I never even myself thought about how um, there is like a, the, you can just draw the, the correlation between them because there's, you experience the, the town of Derry uh, when the characters are children and then again in adulthood. And that's similar to what we're dealing with in uh in twin peaks with season three where we've taken characters who were who were children when the original triggering event happened and now we're witnessing like what has happened and and the result of that so that's a very thoughtful email as always from sean do you have any other other thoughts on it nick um yeah yeah it's it's a great comparison um i have read it uh it's been a while but um yeah, I, th- I I like that comparison between Derry and Twin Peaks. These are both places that the way that they're depicted very much traffics in a classic Americana, like 50s inspired ideal. And obviously in both cases, the, the works benefit from from subverting that in some pretty extreme ways. And uh, I think that the examples that he gives are on point. Um, he mentions Bobby and Ben as being characters that have a, a troubled past, to say the least, and have done some things that have hurt others around them and, and people in their lives. And they've given way to a various forms of corruption. Um, yeah, and they're definitely not the only ones either. Um off the top of my head, I would say, like, uh, Nadine comes to mind. Uh, mm-hmm. She's somebody who, late in the season, comes to terms with the way that she's treated Ed and the way that she has, um, maybe not maliciously, but has kept him under her thumb and prevented him from pursuing a life that she knows that he wants, but hasn't really been able to um, to grasp for and uh, she eventually comes clean about it and mm. you know says I-, I recognize the things that I've done and you know you're free to go and she embraces her truth we can assume probably uh, begins a relationship with uh, Dr. Jacoby or, or Dr. Amp um, yeah and uh, I think the characters that end up better off in the return are the ones that come to a, uh, a sort of reconciliation with their own past. And yeah, also a great point that Cooper does exactly the opposite and finds himself completely lost and adrift because of it. So yeah. Hell yeah. That's a great yeah, email. Man. We need more. It is a great please email. send yes. them in. Yeah, please. Um, yeah, we, we do. We do want to hear more responses from you guys. Um, so if you have anything to, uh, to say, even if it's only tangentially related to, to Twin Peaks, 
um, you know, please write into us, 119podcast at gmail.com. All right, so thanks again to Sean. And uh, without further ado, let's get in to part 11. There's a fire where you are going. Please, man. What are you doing? We're trying to get home. We're already late. We're late for dinner. It's way past 6.30. Why is this happening? I saw that gun go shooting out the window. Her uncle is joining us. She hasn't seen him in a very long while. We're late. We've got miles to go. Please, we have to get home. She's sick. Oh! Oh! Oh, God! So, the first scene that we see here is a continuation of the last episode. The plot line with Miriam, her being left for dead by Richard. Apparently, she was able to reach some sort of consciousness and crawl her way out of her trailer before it exploded. She crawls up and is she crawls up out of the forest and is spotted by a couple of kids playing catch playing softball this struck me as being another very antiquated depiction of childhood similar to how we mentioned uh sunny jim a few episodes ago with his his cowboys and indians fixation i don't I, I don't know about how it is uh, where you live but i don't even remember the last time i saw kids just kind of out playing catch like that no Uh, i don't ever i mean i remember doing it as a kid but i don't remember seeing it and i have younger siblings too they don't go outside and play catch they're all watching youtube and and (laughs) god knows what it's all about Fortnite now yeah yeah it's a whole different thing but yeah there it is that sort of lynchian like almost norman rockwell type of uh depiction of boyhood that that he seems to always use or or go to juxtapose certain things with. And yeah. uh I'm I'm very uh I'm very I was very surprised at how responsible these boys were. They they did they had the right protocol. They got mom right away as soon as they saw Miriam pulling herself out of the of the brush. Yeah, they didn't just see a bloodied woman and immediately start running, which uh I'm sure a lot of little kids would probably do. Um but yeah, this is very this is actually um excuse the dogs there. Uh, this is kind of a, a Stephen King-ish scene as well. Um, you know, he and Lynch yeah. are around the same age, and they're both drawing from a similar childhood experience, uh, being raised in the fifties and sixties. So, most definitely, yeah. So that's all that we see of Miriam for the time being. Let's go to the Fat Trout Trailer Park where Becky is having a freak out. She puts a call into Shelly where she's just hysterically screaming and obviously upset about Steven. And she has to borrow the car. She grabs a gun, notably. Uh, What did you make of this whole scene with her and Shelly, with uh, Shelly jumping on the hood of the car and, and being thrown off and all that? it was well i wasn't the first time i saw it i wasn't 
sure exactly what she was freaking out about. I assumed it had something to do with Steven. Um, but I didn't expect it. I didn't expect her to uh, endanger her mother in that way. But uh, I thought this time around watching it, I don't know, I thought it, it, it still kind of caught me off guard. And when she gets flung and her shoes go flying off, uh, I found myself right. genuinely concerned for Shelly and, um, and, for, and for Becky, even though I knew what was going on. But um, the look that Shelly gives Becky while she's, like, backing out, I don't know, it was kind of, she was a little bit too calm for me, like, on the hood of this car. It was inter- it was kind of <laughs> weird. She was just kind of like on the hood of this car, just like staring at Becky, like, "Hey, what are you, what are you doing? Uh, <laughs> you want to tell me what's going?" On? Oh, and then she gets flung from the thing. Um, yeah, I don't know. It 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 it's a, it just happens. I did I did not see it coming, even though I knew it was coming. It still took me off guard. Yeah, it was jarring to see Shelly getting thrown from the hood of the car like that, because it is it so. It is so violent, like you mentioned. I, I think the, her shoes coming off was just the touch that made it seem extra jarring. You know? Yeah, exactly. It was it was visceral. She just gets like the car does like a full one eighty, and she just gets tossed by the momentum. Yeah, just just to see our uh, our beloved Shelly still in her her double R gear and everything like that, uh, being put in a perilous situation. I, I was I was mad at Becky for this. Uh, I, I was, was too. I was, I was hurt on Shelly's behalf. I gotta say, I didn't expect that. I thought she needed a ride somewhere because she just says, "Mom, I need your car." And then Shelly's like, "I gotta go. Becky yeah. needs something." And then just, just very wantonly jumps onto that the hood of that car, which was a weird move. I mean, it was a bold. It move, is, but <laughs> doesn't make a ton of sense. Doesn't seem like something anybody would actually do in real life. Probably, <laughs> I'm guessing. Yeah, it's a, it, it was a, an odd choice, but. She, uh, she she turned out okay. Carl yeah. Carl shows up and saves the day with his fucking yes. whistle. <laughs> <laughs> I love this so much. Holy shit. I laughed the so hard the first time this happened. Because it's, it's such so it's such a shock cuz it's he's he has genuine concern, right? And she's asking oh, yeah. him for help and he's like, "Oh yeah, I got this." And he pulls out this ridiculous whistle that summons this van yeah that's exactly <laughs> like within what it does. seconds like <laughs> it does. the van like the van is just idling somewhere waiting for him to use the whistle at all times i wish to someday have like a butler that i can just keep on call at all times and just, just give him like a million dollars a year just to be my whistle butler oh yeah yeah <laughs> absolutely carl man he's got some connections man uh, i don't know I don't know what his deal is, but he, he knows people who know people. Yeah, he's uh, been around the block, I think. He's moved the fat trout. Uh, yeah. He knows what he knows the deal. Oh yeah. And apparently he has the direct line to the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station because once they get in the car, he just like pulls out this walkie talkie and starts talking to the dispatcher, Maggie down there at the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station. That's right, And yeah. she, she totally knows who he is, and she's just like, hey, Carl. <laughs> you yeah, know, he's like, the eyes, eyes and ears around the neighborhood. Yeah, like he's he's like the neighborhood watch or something. She seems like he probably calls in a lot to uh, to report various goings on. Um, yeah, I think he's, I, I, no matter like 
I know some people based on how he acts in the uh, the scene where Richard hits the kid and he goes and stares at the mother and puts his arm on her. Some people somehow tried to construe that into him being a negative character or or him seeing the the soul leave the body. But I think that we're continuously being shown that Carl Rod is like the he is like like the log lady. He's like part of the heart and soul of Twin Peaks and that really like good trustworthy side. Oh yeah, to me he's one of the few unambiguously good characters in the show. Like one of very yeah. few. Yeah, um, definitely. Especially cuz he's such a dick in Fire Walk with me. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, he's uh yeah, he's gotten softer in his old age for sure. Um so yeah, he agrees to take Shelley uh back to the double R and the only really noticeable or notable rather thing about this conversation that they have in the van is that it's the first time that we hear Shelly referred to as Shelly Briggs, mm-hmm. which I'm not certain if she was referred that way in the credits. I didn't notice that, but this was definitely the first time watching it that I thought, okay, so we have confirmation that she and Bobby were married at one point. Yeah, I don't remember if that's her if that's how she's credited either. But I, I, I remember this being how I drew that connection as well. Because yeah. and that and that um that Beck Becky's father is Bobby. That too. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would suggest that. Um Yeah, this is the first time it's confirmed that they were indeed married at one point, even though it seems that they are uh if not divorced, then separated at the very least. Mm-hmm. So the last little bit that we get of Becky in this episode is the scene where she visits the apartment of the woman that Steven is having an affair with. And she shoots down the apartment door, just unloads a clip into it. Seems pretty extreme, but uh, you got to remember Becky is... Uh, also a drug user so um there's very few things that might cause somebody to do this or drive off uh in a car with your mother on the hood yeah uh, i I definitely took it that she was under the influence (laughs) yeah drugs uh would be my guess and while she's doing this we get a, a pretty great long shot down the winding stairwell where we see Steven and surprise Gersten Hayward listening to all this go down in the stairwell. Uh, I didn't, is she called Gersten or is that just in the credits? No one ever says her name, do they? Um, I don't believe that anyone says her name because I think the only scenes that she has in the show are this one. And then the later scene where they're like tripping balls underneath that big tree later in yeah. the season. Um, so but Gersten yeah, she is, Hayward. she is definitely a uh, Gersten Hayward um, piano player extraordinaire. Yeah. What happened? <laughs> I don't know, man. I just know that she, I just love the scene. And I think it's in season two where you know, she's playing at dinner and then Leland's just like, Hey, do you know, get happy. And she's like, Oh yeah, definitely. And just instantly uh-huh. plays it. <laughs> just yeah. knows it note for note. I don't yes. know. She, she took it. One wrong of the turn. most memorable scenes in the original run, probably oh, uh, yeah. that whole, that whole uh, domestic situation. But 
very funny to me that we've seen Gersten Hayward, but no Donna so far, and we've seen Johnny Horn, but no Audrey. Like, I'm right, sure people right. were just losing their goddamn minds at this point. <laughs> it's such a weird choice. It's like, how did he how did he land on Gersten Hayward as like Stevens? concubine or whatever I, <laughs> like why <laughs> why her <laughs> i don't know the one too there or there's another uh what's what's donna's other sister's name she's not in it either oh yeah i don't know no she's not in it um yeah none of the uh none of the other haywards are in it um yeah, aside from obviously you know doc um, right briefly but yeah very strange um I don't know. I guess just I guess it just relates back to this theme of um, like familial decay and, um, you know, just yeah. the, the young people of Twin Peaks, you know, their degradation is uh, a, a point of fixation. And I guess this is just another another one of those situations where Gersten went from a p- young piano prodigy to a junkie. Yeah, that's that. That's a great point. Yep. So the ne- the next scene comes a little bit later, but it's part of this whole thread. So I was thinking we should just talk about it now. I agree. The Double R Diner. I absolutely love everything that happens here. <laughs> yeah, this is one of the finer moments for sure. Man, just this, everything about this sequence from start to finish is just prime season three of twin peaks in my opinion this is yeah, just it, some really good shit like in every level it, it it like it pulls you in it gets you really invested in one thing and then it, it immediately gets you invested in another thing and then once and then it gets you invested in another even weirder thing at the end but the way that it yes. like the way that each thing sort of parlays into the next it is very much this this is like this could just be a short film i think <laughs> if you just <laughs> just take this out and throw it at, in some festival with no context and i would love it for sure it's just it's great absolutely i really love seeing bobby and shelly in concerned parent mode here it was just such a satisfying evolution i felt to to see these cute these two characters who have experienced their own struggles their own dramas you know in love and life sort of settling into um a parental role and trying their best to console and help out their daughter who is in a situation that you know, very conceivably one or both of them could have gotten themselves into, you know, and Shelly obviously had her own struggles with Leo and, and sort of was in a very bad situation. Um, and yeah, it was just, this is just a great character moment. And I would have loved to have seen more of this dynamic play out. Like, you know, I don't, I don't have many, wishes for what could have been in the season but just more of this this triangle with bobby and shelly and becky i would have i would have loved to have seen more of it yeah it's one of the 
it's one of the more tender uh, corners that we we end up in, and I I agree that it's interesting how Bobby or Shelley like Bobby certainly is no stranger to drug use and and just that whole world and Shelley is no stranger to being in an abusive relationship and you can really see how the both characters they understand what Becky is going through um, but they know and they also know that they can't pry the answers out of her so they're trying to sort of tiptoe and do this dance and just make sure that she's safe and it was it's really it's like a in a lot of ways it's a really heartwarming scene because um all I could think of is the scene in, uh, I think season one, where Bobby goes over Shelly's house before Leo's home, and they're just like he's like seducing her with the gun, and they're just being mm-hmm. sort of like young, goofy kids, and now they're twenty five years later in a very dire, dire like, uh, serious situation and handling it, uh, for the most part, for very maturely. Um, I I, th- I thought it was just a great. Like it was, it was a very wholesome kind of scene, and I I do wish that we could have seen it play out more than we did. Um, uh, but the little like the little sprinklings that we get, I think it it fits with the with the whole package deal that we're getting with with the third season of Twin Peaks, and uh, we don't like I think if any of the like the like even the the very well we haven't even got to it yet like the very small Norma and Ed thing like even if we could extrapolate on that a little more. It would have been nice, but I like the the little pepperings we get and this the little vignettes that kind of contain themselves within the season. Totally agree. Bobby really steps to the plate here. He agrees to loan Becky the money to fix Gerson's door. Um, Becky is very opposed to the idea of paying any sort of money to fix the door of uh the woman that her husband is cheating on her with um which is understandable i guess um yeah yeah like you said bobby and and shelly are really just sort of gently prodding shelly trying to push her in the right direction questioning whether or not this relationship is really the best thing for her and one moment that I felt was really telling was when Bobby asked her very pointedly if Steven had ever hit her and Becky has a very outsized reaction to that. Like she's like, no, no. Oh no. He's not like that. Which to me really just seems like, you know, the lady doth protest too much, you know, like we just saw in the last episode, Steven, you know, pinning her to the couch with his fist raised. Yeah, just seems like, like that. Oh yeah, she's. Uh, I sense that Becky is probably just protecting Stephen from her, uh, from her cop dad in that moment. Yeah, well, she even she starts the whole conversation by saying, "I hate him. I want out." And then Bobby says, "You want a divorce?" And she goes, "I don't know. I love him so much," or something like mm. that. So she's mm-hmm. she is. I mean, and she's also a victim and she's been, uh, she does probably has no idea. Uh, she's young. Like she, she, she probably does have some warped love for this guy and is trying to protect him, uh, as as detrimental to her as that is. But, uh, I, yeah, it's sad. It's a bummer. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bad situation. Another thing that I love about this scene is Norma. Just just a queen. Mm-hmm. She's looking at everything going on here very judgmentally. Just, I was going to say disapproving. Oh, like her, yeah. her, her, her furrow. She is very, very disapproving. Shelly breaks down crying because of, you know, everything that's happening and being almost run over by her daughter and everything like that. And Becky sort of sees Norma looking over at her, like as if to say like, hey, you better, you know, you better make amends now. And Becky at that point just sort of immediately springs into apology mode. Norma's judgmental gaze was just too much for her to handle. Um, yeah it worked charms <laughs> yeah and this very touching moment is broken rather abruptly when <laughs> out of nowhere Shelly sees her boyfriend Red played by Balthazar Getty <laughs> in the window uh, who will remember uh, uh, from the king and I slash uh, coin trick fame she runs outside and just starts making out with him, totally interrupting this very important moment with her daughter. And Bobby and Becky both just look at each other like, what the fuck? Oh, it's, <laughs> Which it's, was my reaction bananas. as well. Like, Shelly, what the hell are you doing? Yeah, I guess it shows that she's... Shelly, for, for all her, her positives, still has a bit of that... Uh, bad taste in men, we'll say. Yeah, and I, but I don't know. Yeah, that's why. That's why I said it was a mostly mature uh, event because she she just completely ruins this moment by running outside and making out with them right in front of the door, and then very conspicuously just grabbing him by the collar and pulling him uh, around the corner. And it, this is another. This is a head scratcher. Just that their relationship. Um. I don't know what to make of it. Do you have any ideas? I mean, this is like, this is like teenager shit, man. Like just yes. being, just being so overcome that you just run outside and you just start making out in front of everybody. Like this is not something that, like, a grown ass woman in her forties would do. Really, you know. I think it just suggests that perhaps Shelley hasn't really evolved as much as we might think um you know despite all indications being that she is a loving concerned mother you know she she has her own issues uh clearly with men so yeah and bobby and bobby just has this really disappointed look on his face um either because of just pure disappointment that Shelly would do this in front of their daughter or you know perhaps because he has some lingering feelings maybe some jealousy uh towards Shelly who knows yeah I thought it was a bit of a hurt look um mm-hmm. bit of like and then Becky of course notices and sort of does the double twig take between her mom and her dad and that's when <laughs> Shelly notices and yanks him around the corner yep and then the scene takes a completely different turn and gunshots break through the window at the double R everybody screams the lights go out everybody gets down and Bobby goes into full cop mode 
draws his gun, runs outside to see what's going on. And what he sees is uh, a little boy standing there with a gun. A little kid in full camo gear, which we see matching uh, his camo gear dad, which I thought was a, uh, kind of a funny touch. Hilarious. They're in the same pose, too. Yeah. Uh-huh. And just the, this idea of just like this gun-toting, you know, camo-wearing, uh, you know, sort of dullard. Uh, is just, <laughs> I, I, th- I thought it was uh, a very funny uh just a very funny character type uh, to yeah, insert into the scene at, at random, seemingly. So. I just love his the the wife as like the only sane person, like, and she's just like, "You put a fucking gun in the car," and she's just like <laughs> reading him the riot act. And at one point, she's just like, "Are you a fucking moron?" And the guy's just standing there, like, uh, "I don't, uh, I don't, know, I don't know." But like, I I loved how the the kid stares at Bobby with this look of like, yeah, I fucking did that. Like, yeah, I shot that. <laughs> like he just get, he has this like look on his face. Like that is just purely like unapologetic dickhead. And then yeah. you go over to the, the shot of the dad who is also sort of standing there. Like, oh, I'm see what I did so wrong. Like <laughs> just kind of shamefully trying to skirt the guilt. Uh, I, I thought it was hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Adding a layer of anxiety to all this is this woman who just won't stop honking. Um, Bobby tries to get her to shut up by just raising his hand like, please stop honking. Uh, But it doesn't work. So in this moment, our good friend Deputy Jesse shows up. The most useless (laughs) member of the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department. He mentions that he was at Big Ed's Gaff's farm. And you know what? He heard shots. So he shows up and he's just going to take care of this whole uh, gun situation. Uh, This is notable only because this is the first mention, I believe, of Big Ed. We have not heard the name Big Ed prior to this at all. Oh, yeah, that's right. But he was used in promotional material, I do believe. He was. He was indeed. Oddly enough. Yeah. It was funny. On the Comic-Con panel that happened during the season, I think it aired, um, or I think it happened right after, like, episode 10 or something. Uh, He was there on the panel, and it was hilarious because he hadn't showed up in the show yet, and he couldn't really say anything. Oh, yeah. So (laughs) he was just kind of there. You know, Everett McGill, it's like, yeah. Kind of funny. Um so yeah, let's let's get into uh, this lady who is very flustered about being late for dinner. Uh, what do you what just general, general thoughts? thoughts. Um, Go. I'm not sure yes. if if something if are we in Bobby's like do we just shift into his dream nightmare mode? Because the thing is, if that if this lady was talking to me. <laughs> I would I would have shut her I would have tried to make her stop talking instantly. I would have I would have tried to interfere with the situation. Bobby just like is very stoically or not even stoic, just kinda like horrified, wide eyed, just stares at this whole situation. I I genuinely don't know what what to make of it or 
if it um, ties into this whole weirdness at the R and R with like the two the two R and Rs, I have no idea. But the first time around, I think the first time around, I I was just genuinely shocked by it and thought maybe we would learn something about it later. We don't. Uh, the second time I saw it, I I thought that perhaps this is some sort of a dream sequence. Maybe even um, the whole the whole like I've had a feeling this could all be Bobby's dream. Even the whole conversation with Becky and and Shelly. I don't know. And and Red. Like who knows? How would he know who Red is? I don't know. But but I was like, I mean, that's not like that's completely out of the question with a show like this. And then watching it uh, a third time, I went back to having absolutely no idea. Um, so your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> you know, I really thought that this was going to be the the uh, the beginning of the zombie outbreak in Twin Peaks. Yeah, I mean that, that, that was my first thought because why else would you make it a point to emphasize that somebody is behaving in this zombie-like manner? Uh, you know, the way that the girl sits up with her arms extended in a very classically zombie-like pose mm-hmm. while she's puking and it seems like her eyes are like rolling back. Definitely seemed like uh, we were in for some Walking Dead action. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, I think it's more just uh, this thing that, you know, we, we talk about a lot, which is just... Um, just ev- everything is horribly wrong with the young people of Twin Peaks. Yep. Like, just every like every young person is just an absolute mess. Um, yeah, and this is another example. And this this actress just we we got it. We gotta heap some praise onto uh this screaming lady here. She's a champion. She's a champ. She is. She is absolutely hysterical. I love it so much. She just we're late for dinner. Why is this <laughs> happening? Her uncle is joining us. She hasn't seen him in a very long time. She's sick. <laughs> She's sick. It's just <laughs> Dude, the way it spirals, the way cuz at first when when she's just like uh we're late. Why is this happening? I was like you know what, lady? I feel you. Like I, I've been there. I've been there when there's when the when the highway gets closed down to one lane, and it takes you forty minutes to get to the end of the line, and then you get there, and it's fucking one guy like carrying a rock, and you're like, why is there like a mile of the highway closed for this one dude to carry a rock? Like I also want to scream and <laughs> slam on my horn. But then she starts going into we're late her uncle she hasn't seen her uncle uh she's sick and then it's just like wait what is happening and it's almost like it's almost like she's having she's two different uh she's like mad about two different things and she's just like cutting in and out between them uh but yeah she absolutely spot on i the first time i did not laugh the first time i was actually like very put off by it and uh, also it's thought, too shocking to laugh at yeah. the first time i think i just thought yeah exactly i thought that it was going to amount to more 
So I was just sort of watching intently and then realizing, you know, the second time around, knowing that nothing ever comes of it, it was just like, dude, <laughs> this is out of control. It's just completely bananas. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why she's so pissed off about being late for dinner when she clearly has a zombie in the passenger seat. That right. seems like the more pressing concern. Right. She's, she's, she's more than sick. Like when I like, said, when she says she's sick, I was expecting to see like, you know, maybe just like a little, she's a little pale on the face. She doesn't feel very good. No, that's not sick. She is a, she's a zombie. That's a, she's an yeah. undead uh, creature of the night. So she's going to eat brains. That's yeah. going to happen. That is, that is the order of operations. She's going to do her little zombie thing. And then she's like with her arms, her Frankenstein, and then she's going to crawl over her and eat Bobby's brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, incredible scene all around, start to finish. Love everything that happens at the double R here. So let's check in with the Blue Rose Task Force. And let's go to the zone. Ooh. Yeah. Spooky. This is another this is another fantastic scene. Oh god. Love yeah. everything about this. This is one of my favorites. Hell yeah. Without question. So the crew here is Gordon, Albert, Diane, Detective Mackley, and Hastings. They're all here because Bill has led them here. This is where the quote-unquote zone is, according to Hastings. And Hastings looks very nervous about returning to this place understandable because last time he came here uh, Mr. C we presume and a bunch of woodsmen probably showed up and stepped on his neck and killed Ruth and he just sort of sits in the car during this whole thing like teeth chattering just a, a nervous twitchy wreck and this whole sequence here with Gordon approaching the portal to the zone is so brilliant to me because just on a meta level, the image of David Lynch approaching this unknowable void and raising his arms up to it and, you know, accepting the, uh, accepting the, the, the unknown and the potentially dangerous just has a lot of symbolic value to me. And I appreciate the way that this scene fluctuates between his subjective point of view in which, you know, there are loud electricity noises going on and the camera becomes blurry and shaky and out of focus. And everybody else's point of view, which we cut back to at one point, which is just total stillness and everybody's just watching him raise his arms and <laughs> you know i love it it's so funny tripping balls it's just it's just a great image that i really enjoy yeah how it cuts to that wide shot of the whole that you that we enter the scene on and you just see like the also the sound cuts out too so you go from this like whirring cyclone sound to just silence and seeing david lynch just waving his arms in the air while a bunch of people stand around and watch him. It is perfect <laughs> on a metal level. And I also really 
loved the image of the Blue Rose Task Force with their guns drawn, just in their in their long coats, just walking into the like into this site. It was very very noir. It was really it was really, like we don't you don't get a ton of that, but I think we've even said before everything from the Blue Rose Task Force this season is just pretty much gold, like through and through. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Should probably mention before Gordon even steps up to the portal, he and Albert actually spot a woodsman. Yeah. Just sort it... of hanging around behind the house. They take note of it, but they don't do anything about it. Assuming, you know, they probably just think that it's a homeless person of some sort. They're not too concerned about it. Yeah, I, I don't um, know how to read that because the, the the woodsman does like disapparate sort of like uh and i i've wondered if we're meant to believe that gordon and albert see that as well if they see this guy sort of like because he he creeps over and then he disappears before he like goes behind a wall like he very visibly sort of fades away and then it cuts back to them noticing him so i don't know i there's a lot of there's a lot of strangeness to this scene and how and how um with respect to how they act afterwards yes that i agree yeah i think it has a little bit to do with like the or has similarities to the david bowie scene with uh the philip jeffries scene from fire walk with me where they all you know seem to have fuzzy memories of it i think this is like another one where they're acting mm-hmm. a, bit, a bit peculiar yeah, and very notably, Diane sees a woodsman as well, and she doesn't say anything about it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yet another instance of we just can't be sure what Diane knows, what she understands, what she wants, what her goal is. It's very, it's very difficult to know. What exactly is up with Diane? Like, does she know what a woodsman is? Does she recognize it? Is she seeing it for the first time? Very uh, difficult to say for sure. Yeah. She also uh, excuses herself from this situation like she is wont to do, uh, which is something that now that we know that Albert and and Gordon are are suspicious of her or onto her, I I I thought they were going to to call her out on that and how she she gets right to the back of the car and goes this is as far as I go. Uh to me right. insinuating that maybe she knows what's going on over there and she doesn't want any part of it and gauging her reaction when she sees the woodsman uh creeping up to Bill Hastings it's almost as if she no she doesn't really react. She just watches it happen like maybe perhaps she was expecting it to or um if because she also relayed to mr c that hastings was going to take them to the site so right whoever that it, mr c must have relayed that information to the woodsman so they wanted to tie up their loose end in in bill hastings which begs the question of why didn't why didn't they kill him um yeah and, and when, when they killed ruth or or who knows but it seems like she was involved in his in bill hastings death in some way whether or not she even knows that which is a weird yeah. thing to say 
What's weird though is that in the in the next scene at, at the Buckhorn Sheriff Station, she does confess to spotting the woodsman. You know. Yeah, but then sort of reels back on it and says, "Like right, but why? But why even bring it up at all?" Yeah, because I think she's like she's split or conflicted in some way. I don't know. Yeah, very curious. I don't. I don't. Yeah, again, very difficult to to tell what's going on with Diane. Um, I will say though, I do love her get up here in oh, this dude, scene. Pants, this is yeah. some. Oh, this is some peak Diane fashion here. She's got those f- like hyper. I don't even know what you would call it, like flared red pants. Yeah, like parachute <laughs> and, pants. And uh, like this cheetah print blouse, isn't that what it, what she's wearing? I believe so. I don't remember yeah. exactly what she's wearing, but I know that she looks fly as hell. Extremely strong look from Diane here. Oh hell yeah! Um, she, I mean the 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 just her fashion throughout this whole show. We should. I want to just like put together a a little collage and just look at it and just put it up on my wall because yeah. it's so it, it's just it's artistic in how how cool yeah. she looks. Yeah, a lot of it is very Eastern uh, inspired, mm-hmm. which um, you you might say is sort of hinting to the fact that she's you know she's actually NATO perhaps. Right, could be yeah, which is a kind of a weird kind of a weird dynamic there, but uh. Yeah, so Gordon has this very intense encounter with the portal to the zone. So much so that Albert has to yank him away from it so that he doesn't disappear into it. For a split second, Gordon sees all of the woodsmen on the stairs there, and we recognize it, um, or we will come to recognize it later as the Dutchman's. Mm-hmm. So, I think, like we mentioned a couple episodes ago, the zone is the Dutchman's. I think we can safely say, based on what we see. They also spot Ruth Davenport's body. Albert notices uh, a headless woman, and they rightly assume that it is Ruth. And she has coordinates written on her arm. Uh, we will see Diane in the next scene very <laughs> conspicuously mouthing the coordinates to herself in an attempt to memorize it, uh, which in a very not-so-subtle way that Albert definitely uh, catches wise to. Yeah, it's like so unsubtle that I wonder if she is aware that she's even doing it. Like she can, <laughs> She continuously like kind of... I don't know, not contradicts herself, but she just acts in, in like some ways she's very secretive and she's, you know, sending these ridiculously encrypted messages. And then in other ways, she's like blatantly mouthing the coordinates in front of everybody without even trying to hide it. Yeah. Very curious. Yep. More Diane weirdness. And our friend Bill Hastings meets his end here. His head is squished by a woodsman. And I love here, before his head gets squished, the screen sort of turns blurry for a couple seconds. And mm-hmm. you hear the sound of the woodsman crunching his head. It's the same sound that we hear in part eight. That yeah, it's brilliant. awful, scrunchy, cracking sound. 
Yeah, and I, I knew I knew what was going to happen, and then you don't get the the shot for a couple seconds. But once I heard that sound, I was like, "Oh fuck! I know it's going down." Yep. It's Mackley flips the hell out. He says, "Oh my god! Oh my <laughs> god!" Which I don't know how else you're supposed to react. Uh, it's a it's, real reaction. That's some good acting right there. Seems like an appropriate reaction to a man's head spontaneously exploding all over you. At the inside of your car. Yep, <laughs> um, with no gunshot. It's just, just his head blew yeah. up. <laughs> and Gordon really has the most important observation here. Really the the key the key input into this whole situation. He he looks at Bill Hastings and he says He's dead. <laughs> really I'll just keying in on <laughs> What exactly is happening here? Nothing gets past Gordon. He's a brilliant <laughs> mind, and I appreciate it. Just the fact that this is such a rich scene, and we, it's it drips with like it just oozes with everything like David Lynch that you could possibly want. It has the noir, it has the intrigue, it has the interesting camera effects, it has the unknowable uh, aspects to it, and then the whole thing the cherry on top of it all is this fucking punchline like where bill it would be climax with bill hastings head just exploding and you're left wondering just like like sort of like after a scene like that like wow what the hell just happened and then it's just capitulated with he's dead <laughs> like and tammy has this very like dramatic response to it i don't know if you noticed but she kind of like mm-hmm. very aggressively rolls her eyes back um, I, I, it was one of the things too, where it was so funny that I had to pause the next scene cause I was laughing so hard. Um, I didn't want to rewind it and watch it again. Cause I just, I loved the beauty of that entire scene culminating in that one two word punchline. It's just, it was absolutely stellar. It's perfection. I'll be honest. This is the hardest laugh that I had my first time through watching this. It's just yeah, this so is the, <laughs> the timing is just Mwah! it's perfect. No, it is. It's all in the timing. Like, he knows exactly how what he's doing. It's perfect. Yeah. For sure. Oh god. Yeah, and then like we mentioned, there is sort of a little button scene on the end of this where they all reconvene at the Buckhorn police station. Uh, there's a bit of there's more some there's more of um, some of Gordon's hearing humor here, which is yeah. just you know ever present. It's not uh, not really too worth getting into. It has to has to deal with a cat on a hot tin roof. <laughs> Albert makes some jokes that Gordon doesn't understand, and that's pretty much it. Um, yeah, like we mentioned, Diane she takes a look at this photograph of Ruth's arm. Albert definitely sees it. Tammy and Mackley walk in with holding just armfuls of coffee and donuts. And we get uh, Gordon responding with the policeman's dream, (laughs) which he said before, right? Am I crazy? Or did he say that before? I don't. Did he say it? I don't know if he said it in season three or if he says it in the original run. But no, I, I mean, I like, this have. season. Did he say that before? I don't know. I don't think so. He I does. Crazy? I mean, it's 
it's just very similar to all of his like a congressman's dilemma right that's something to really think about the and memory of tobacco yeah it's just one of his weird little adages yeah maybe he didn't uh or adage whatever that word is <laughs> yeah yeah just nuggets of greatness from from gordon cole and just the uh just the coffee and donut cigarette porn in this scene is really great just all of david lynch's interests really just combined into one diane just desperately wants to wants to puff up here she says do you know how good a cigarette would taste with this coffee and the way that she says it too is just so so impassioned and Mackley, he's powerless to deny her. He's just like, yeah, you're right, you know. You just it, it would taste pretty great. Like, by all means, spark up, you know. Yeah, smoke them if you got them, is, yeah. is what he says. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, everybody in this scene acknowledges the primal power of coffee, donuts, and cigarettes. And it's a morning ritual. Yep. Certainly. So that's it for the Blue Rose Task Force for this episode. There is Let's... one more uh, Gordon Cole quote that I, I need to draw attention oh, to. Yeah, sure. When he when he uh, remembers seeing the woodsman uh, in the in the in the portal, he uh-huh. just goes, "Oh, that's it! I remember it. They were in a room. Dirty bearded men in a room." <laughs> <laughs> he just That's lays right. it all on the line right there uh mm-hmm. it was just one of his one of his little fucking things that just cracks me up every time uh, factually accurate that is indeed what he saw <laughs> it's perfect it is so let's take a trip back to twin peaks where we meet up with hawk and truman hanging out at the sheriff station Hawk here is showing Frank his, what he calls his living map. And I assume that that means that the map is just sort of updating itself constantly. Like it's some sort of magical map. Or did I, like, did you get that sense too? Or or am I just totally fabricating that? That's, that's what I felt like he was indicating. Cause he, he says it's like a, uh, yeah, he says it's like a, didn't he say it's like an organism or something? Or then he calls it the living map. So it it is, I assumed that it was some sort of, I don't know, this is one of the more uh, interesting bits of lore that we get. And I think mm-hmm. that there's there's a ton to dig into here. And I almost try not to get too lost in any of the corners <laughs> of it because there's so many things going on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there is, there's a lot going on with this scene here, um, especially when the log lady uh, comes into it later on Mm -hmm. but a few of the major points of information here hawk says that major briggs's station where he you know did all his uh all his crazy um work presumably trying to get to the white lodge all that stuff happened on blue pine mountain which is where jack rabbit's palace is AKA the entrance to the White Lodge, uh, which is going to become a place of great significance later in this season. Um, Hawk explains a few concepts here about 
the symbols on the map. He talks about the uh, the fire symbol being sort of like modern day electricity. Electricity obviously being of great importance to the Twin Peaks world. It is a conduit of sorts between our realm and the spirit realm. And whether or not the fire is good or bad depends upon the intention of the fire, according to Hawk. Which um, sort of tracks with uh, something that Hawk said in the beginning. uh, Or not the beginning, but in the original run. Where it says, like, if you approach with imperfect courage, etc. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Do you have any uh, any thoughts on this um, related to the fire symbol or um, this black corn, which he says represents death and just everything going on with this map here? Well, yeah, I mean, the fire symbol, I think he's... We can look at it like if, if you're... Re- equating the way he says that he said it's more like electricity and i guess i would read it as like the fire is more of like man-made creation uh because it's a campfire it's two logs and then a fire it's not just simply a fire so it's this intentionally uh harnessed energy that you use to create something and the attention behind intention behind that creation will uh determine whether or not it is, I guess, a black fire or, 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 uh, whatever, red fire. And I think that we see that, like, with the atomic bomb sequence, like, that is a, a man made object intended to kill. And so, uh, that I think happened on such a scale that it created this. Um, like it, it, like it created this negative energy or attracted this negative energy, um, and it would be an example of the symbol of black fire. Whereas, um, I don't know, maybe we could, we don't see it in the show, but there's there's plenty of other technologies and inventions that are helpful to people and that can save lives. And I guess that would be in our, in this case, a symbol of of the good fire. And then the black corn versus. Uh, the the natural corn, I think, is symbolically representing the like the perversion of of nature or the perversion of of that energy, uh, and it's I guess corn is like like Hawk says represents fertility. Um, it's also a food stuff, so it's it could represent sustenance and that diseased, decaying. Uh, form is being like shown in in the youth of twin peaks like we've talked about uh so i think we're i think they're pretty basic kind of symbols kind of black and white uh that we could probably attach to a bunch of different aspects of the show but i think that that whole uh that whole theme of electricity and it's the intention behind it that determines um you know what form it takes is something that can play into the fact that we don't really know uh, uh, the true intentions of a lot of the characters in the red room uh a lot of the characters from the dutchman's because philip jeffries is in the dutchman's or at least is accessible through the dutchman's mm-hmm. and or the um the white lodge so we like there is like it seems like all of those worlds are connected in some way and 
that while there's obviously evil in in say the red room because Bob is is present there and uh, I feel like the the arm has some bits of, of evil to him uh, but then there's Mike who seems to be working with Cooper and it's not exactly clear who is who is doing the the quote unquote good bidding and who's doing the bad bidding so I don't know I I think that the fact that Hawk too is is giving this um, this rundown of the map. Hawk very much speaks in these um, sort of vague terms that I think we're meant to uh, interpret in in any way that that we can. And sort of how we interpret it can can have an effect on on what it might mean. I think that's actually genuinely part of the of a, a scene like this is to give you a lot of a lot of stuff to think about and sort of have the conversations that like me and you are having right now and trying to sort of get to the heart of like, what do we think it means? And Lynch has always talked about how valid that is uh, in terms of like, you know, literally what the, what the work means. Yeah, no, all all that's really, really well said. Um, I think the scene for me, the underlying the underlying theme of it is that Hawk and Truman and I guess Bobby and, and everybody who is sort of involved in this, in this quest is really standing on the precipice where things could potentially, could potentially go horribly wrong. I think of this whole scene as a warning and the log lady, you know, very notably comes in towards the end of this saying, my log is afraid of fire. There's fire where you were going. And we get immediately after that, a very quick insert shot of the black fire. Meaning Mm -hmm. like if you continue down, you know, this path of investigating agent Cooper and the lodges and all, all this sort of really potentially dangerous and unknowable stuff it could really consume you. It could really backfire on you. And, you know, you you could be consumed by the black fire, you know, and it's, it's worth, worth pointing out that the fire and the black corn is what makes the black fire, according to Hawk, uh, at least Mm -hmm. symbolically. And it's just, it can't be an accident that we're dealing with corn here. (laughs) <laughs> and, right yeah you know obviously all these connotations of garmin bosia and uh i just think that this whole scene with the map is a, a fascinating way of of communicating the, the fact that they are they're dealing with forces that are potentially way above their head and that they are about to embark on a journey that could potentially consume them in a certain way that that was the way that that I took it. Um, yeah, and it's almost like even a classic hero's tale. Like these are the the heroes of the story facing the unknowable, like um, like the that chaotic, like unknown, and getting that confirmation from the log lady that they are indeed on this path toward that. Um, and the fact that neither of them seem to shy away from that is. Uh, I think telling of, of those two characters, uh, Frank Truman and Hawk, like they're very 
very firmly um like like from from the get-go like they're in it just to sort of for the in this pure way like they're just sort of trying to solve the mystery um for the sake of that which is interesting because we we do know how how david lynch feels about trying to solve the mystery um mm-hmm. so I, I don't know it's an interesting look into what what type of warning those characters get um, right well, well that comes up so- with the whole judy symbol thing right like yes right where where hawk refuses to tell him what it is and assures him like oh you don't really want to know about that you know that's feels very much like lynch inserting himself and saying like oh you you know this is this is uh all the all this stuff you you think you think i'm just gonna lay it out here and explain it all for you but uh yeah, I, I will do no such thing, sir. Yeah, that's that that moment uh, still will give me the chills. Just the way it's executed, uh, and just the because I, I like I'm sure all of us we all noticed that symbol the first time that the map is laid out, and then when Frank Truman finally calls it out, we were all on the edge of our seats. Like, please, Hawk, tell us what the <laughs> Judy symbol is. And you yep. just get stonewalled, and mm-hmm. but but not only does it work on that level, it also works on like it really sold me on like no that you you'd rather not know it's that bad <laughs> it's that mm-hmm. it's it's that type of an evil that it's not fun it's not which is why when people get that symbol tattooed on them I just think it it's funny <laughs> it's like <laughs> the symbol of like the ultimate terrible nature of evil um mm. but no it's, it's it's a cool looking symbol either way and as we see it later on it takes on a bunch of different forms so yeah um but yeah i loved this scene or i loved that part of the scene very much i'm gonna be honest i for a minute i contemplated getting the uh the ace of spades card with the judy symbol tattooed um but it's cool looking it is but here's the thing I don't want people to think I'm a card guy. Mm, uh, gotcha. You know, I don't want people to That's... think I'm some sort of like a card shark or something like that. Uh, and also, <laughs> the Judy symbol—it's not like <laughs> it's not like an aesthetically cool symbol. You know what I mean? It's, it's just very not, simple. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like a black circle. It just like it looks kind of like a. It's like a dog with big floppy ears or something like that, you know? Yeah, I always thought it had an insect vibe to it. Yeah, or or that. Neither of which is something that I desperately want tattooed on my body. Because I've, I've thought a lot about um, Twin Peaks-related tattoos, and it could very well be something that I get at a certain point, but I, I think the Judy symbol might be out for me, unfortunately. I've also thought about Twin Peaks tattoos, but I'm very, I only have one tattoo and it's not that good. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, it's just the black flag bars on my shoulder that I got when I was uh, like 18 on classic. my friend's couch, but oh boy. I can't. Yeah. So it could use a touch up, but I, <laughs> I'm very, uh, I am very like hard, hard to decide about like what to put on my body. Cause I don't, make any art myself like i can't draw i can't design my own tattoo and i feel really bad about going to a tattoo artist and describing something and then <laughs> if they if they if i'm not like a hundred percent in on what i see i feel like a dick being like no nah, i don't want that on my body forever sorry 
Like, yeah, no, I have the same anxiety uh, about that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm definitely, uh, I'm, I'm open to a, a Twin Peaks tattoo. I just don't know what it might be yet. There's a lot of options. Um, there's always like the Owl Cave symbol, but it's like that's like the black flag bars uh, of Twin Peaks. <laughs> it's just like it's a thing that a lot of people have. Um, yeah, right. So I don't know. We'll see. Anyways, uh, this scene ends in the only way it could end, which is uh, Deputy Jesse showing up and asking Truman if he wants to see his new car. Beautiful. So. Another yeah. like really rich scene that just ends with this fucking punchline. Mm-hmm. I mean, just Jesse, just a stunningly useless character. Just, I'm a huge Deputy Jesse fan. Yeah. He's a, no, he's I am a too. wonderful I'm just, wallflower. I, I am in awe at his utter uselessness um it it is it is profoundly good to me just the way he always shows up at random times and is like very very self-confidently like like sure about why he is there like he just always is in this like very powerful stance like he's on the edge of his seat waiting to tell you something but it's never anything important (laughs) it's great no he does not do a single thing of consequence in the entire <laughs> show, and I think it's brilliant. He's a cop on the payroll. Yeah, yeah. So let's go to Vegas. Let's check in at Lucky Seven Insurance, where we see Bushnell doing some classic old guy desk push-ups here, which, <laughs> which is really that's that's how you know you're washed, just as a guy. When you're when you're doing those kind of push-ups, that's when it's like okay, yeah, it's my I am past my prime officially. Yeah, like while you're waiting for your for your employee to enter the office, like let me squeeze in <laughs> ten or fifteen of these bad boys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There was like a viral video of uh, like Al Sharpton doing these, and it, I always thought it was very funny. <laughs> um, I didn't even know it was a real thing. Yeah. It was great, yeah. It, it is it is something that people do. It is like I said, it's like exclusively people like Bushnell Mullins. It's a thing that Bushnell Mullins and people like him do. <laughs> so from his office, we see our old pal Phil Bisbee luring Dougie into Bushnell's office with a bunch of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. Dougie is arms outstretched just going for that coffee it is it's like it is the way gag. that this office has figured out to motivate dougie yeah it's it's a it's a it's a time uh timeless tried and true tested method of getting dougie jones into places just put yes. coffee in front of him yeah it's really the Carry only on way stick. um so you just you do what you gotta do yeah or well yeah. After getting laid, he seemed a little bit more obedient towards Jamie <laughs> E. So, getting yes. laid and coffee, two mm. wonderful things. Relatable. <laughs> um, so, the gist of the scene is that Dougie's case files with the ladders and st- stairs and lines and whatnot that he drew with a pencil in his palm like a kindergartner actually exposed a ring of organized crime and police corruption flowing through lucky seven insurance and wouldn't you know it 
Yeah, and what you know it it also proves that the Mitchum Hotel fire was actually indeed arson. And therefore Lucky 7 needs to pay out 30 million dollars. So Bushnell hands Dougie a check for 30 million dollars. Who Okay, first of all, who would possibly transport $30 million, A, in a check, in an envelope, <laughs> and B, with Dougie Jones? That uh, is phenomenal. Bushko Mullins? Bushko yeah. Mullins would. <laughs> That's he's, like, he's like, this is definitely a surefire way to, to make certain that the money is going to get where I need it to go. He's not wrong, That's, though. It's That's beautiful. It, he, no, it he does get there. He has intuition. He has intuition, and he knows that if Dougie Jones is uh is smart enough to have uncovered this this ring of of uh, organized crime going on within his business, he is surely trustworthy enough to carry this thirty million dollar piece of paper in his front mm. pocket uh, to the Mitchum brothers. Uh, Who I else? Mean, his faith in Dougie is not misplaced. Um, no, and 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 he is proven wise because. Uh, we, you know, he's he's the one who who makes out in the end. <laughs> yep. So, the Mitchum brothers, they're at home. They've just learned from Anthony that Dougie is is trying to scam them. You know, you know, they're they're pissed off because Dougie is shorting them thirty million dollars plus all the jackpot money at the casino and. They are just ready to kill Dougie. Like, they're done with this guy. Um, Bradley Mitchum wakes up, comes out, and he pours himself a bowl of Raisin Bran. And (laughs) he is so consumed with hatred for Dougie Jones. He is so... He is just vibrating with rage at... This devious fuck, Dougie Jones. This conniving, brilliant, undercutting mastermind that he he can't even eat his raisin bran. It's too much. He, he can't do it. Nope, he can't. And it it's one of those uh, hilarious lines, similar to Richard, where he, when he's talking to Chad, he's like, uh, "I'll fuck you up bad." When uh, Bradley is just like. It's like, I can't stop thinking about it. I just hate him so much. <laughs> it's so fucking good. Uh, I also love the image of, like, just them, the two brothers just, like, getting up in the morning and eating cereal. Like, they mm-hmm. might be, like, they might be, like, millionaire gangsters, but they're, like, bottom of the totem pole millionaire gangsters. Like, <laughs> like they don't have, like, a lavish breakfast prepared. They're just eating Raisin Bran. And Bradley can't even hang. He can't deal with it. No, he, he he can't even finish his breakfast. Um, he just he's, he's got to kill Dougie. Period. He it's also mentions that he had a dream about killing Dougie, uh, which he is going to uh, slowly reveal over the course of these next couple scenes. So, Dougie walks out with Bushnell. Bushnell at least has the sense to walk out with Dougie and make sure he gets in a limo, which seems like a smart move, all things considered. Yeah, and Dougie sees Mike 
which we haven't seen Mike in a little bit. He's been out of the picture for for, uh, quite a few episodes at this point. He sees Mike waving him over towards a coffee shop called Zymans. And Hmm. we know based on what comes later that Dougie buys some cherry pie there. Or I I imagine Bushnell probably buys it for him, is my guess. I don't know if Dougie is allowed to uh, have the Jones family credit cards. Something tells me no, Janie is so. probably, uh, probably wiser than that. Um, yeah, and even but, if he had, a, had them in his wallet, I don't think he grabbed that off the nightstand. No, <laughs> probably not. He would probably just point at the cherry pie uh, yeah, and that's say what cherry I was pie. Uh, that's my guess. Cherry pie. Yes. Cherry pie. So <laughs> Bushnell Bushnell helps him into the limo. And one thing that I I thought about this time around was when Bushnell says knock him dead, champ, and sort of gives him a playful little um I don't know, just a little dab dab on the chin. Dougie mm. Dougie grabs himself by the cheeks and he goes dead. Now, <laughs> yeah. The thing that I hadn't thought about until this rewatch was that it's sort of reminiscent of Mr. C killing Jack, you know, by grabbing Ooh, his cheeks. That's and true. Kill, and killing him that way. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's very Cause, true. Because it's such an odd move for Dougie to like grab his cheeks in that very specific way and then to go dead. You know? Yeah, I mean, I guess just yeah, because it's dead isn't even the last thing. Does he say knock him dead or knock him dead, kid? He says knock him last... dead. He says knock him dead, champ. Champ, yeah. So yeah. in Dougie fashion, he would typically would say champ. But yeah, yeah. I'm just curious that he says dead. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, someone is, I'm sure, already probably has gone crazy, like trying to draw the hyperlinks between these scenes that are seemingly moving parallel to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think that there is something to that. I think that we're, the, that's a good catch. I didn't even notice that. Yeah. Yeah. I also really love Dougie's face as the limo driver is helping him in because Dougie, he just keeps his hands on his cheeks. Uh, and the limo driver basically shoves him into the limo and Dougie just gets this really panicked, like wide eyed look in his face. <laughs> yeah. I love that. He's, he's like very distressed. And, yeah, his, uh, his eyes bulge out of his head. Like, ooh. Yeah. And this limo driver knows what's up. This limo driver recognizes him from the night of the casino. And he's like, hey, red door. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. I think the limo driver didn't didn't hesitate to uh, to, to shove him in the limo. He's He's been through all this before. Yeah, he so knows the So, they drive the to the desert and... Uh, sorry, go ahead. I just said he knows the drill. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Very curious music choice here, in my opinion. Yeah, I, me too. Uh, this cover of Viva Las Vegas, of course, the Elvis Presley classic, covered by a woman named Sean Colvin. It's just a pretty straightforward, not too remarkable cover of this song. And no, I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. The cover, I mean, or the use yeah. in in it. I don't. I know. I'm not. I'm not a big fan. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the Dead Kennedys version. 
I can tell you that. Oh, me too. Fuck yeah. Uh, that's my favorite version by far. Um, but yeah, this is a very curious choice. I don't, I don't understand it, and I don't really love it. It's just, it's so on the nose obvious. Obviously, with, um, I just said obvious. Obviously, ignore that. <laughs> um, Viva Las Vegas as they're driving through Vegas. I don't know. I just. You guys couldn't find anything else. It just seems strange. It was weird. I don't know. It was weird tonally because, like, the first time, I'm I'm expecting like Dougie Jones to be on his way to getting whacked, and like I know that Lynch will often use like subversive music for scenes like that, but this one has like no. It's like this is what would be playing in like the montage of like the hangover four when they like get into Vegas. Like it's just some like random like movie sounding song. Like, I don't know. I wish it, I wish it was just like anything else. <laughs> Honestly, mm-hmm. it's just, it's just so vanilla. Yeah. I, d- I don't normally take issue with the very obvious music choices on this show, but this is the one that made me raise an eyebrow a little bit. If it was the D- uh, the dead Kennedy's version, that would have been awesome. Oh yeah. That would have worked so much better. That would have been a uh, a truly subversive choice for Lynch, but I, I don't know. I don't YouTube know. I don't know how into punk rock David Lynch is, honestly. Yeah, um, me neither. So Dougie is on his way to the desert to meet up with the Mitchum brothers, who are also on their way to this remote, random location. And while they're in the limo, Bradley elaborates a little bit on this dream that he had about killing Dougie part of this dream is that Rodney's cut which he sustained from Candy hitting him with the remote was fully healed and wouldn't you know it they take the bandaid off and Rodney's cut was indeed fully healed and this really lends some credence to I guess the dream being worthy of taken seriously. And I, I really enjoy this whole, this whole notion of, of Bradley really listening to his dream and taking it to heart because it's just another example that we get in Twin Peaks and really of Lynch's work in general of dreams being taken very seriously. You know, this is a show that in the original run had a scene of Cooper saying, I know who killed Laura because I dreamed it and people actually took it seriously. You know, Mm -hmm. like in twin peaks, dreams are not at all to be taken lightly. And the other thing that I really like about it is that like we mentioned in the previous episode, the whole reason that Robert Nepper had the cut to begin with was just because of uh, some sort of real life accident. And it was um, worked into the show through uh, this, this device of, of candy hitting him with the remote and all that. And I just, I really enjoy just Lynch's incredible improvisatory abilities here of finding a creative way of, working that real life incident into the narrative of the scene here and using it to 
lend credence to Bradley's dream, which is going to become uh, obviously very important in the next scene. I just, to me, it's just a really fantastic example of, of Lynch's creative abilities in general. I like it. Yeah, it's masterful in, in how he he leaves room for himself as he's creating to to flesh out the story even further. And I think that that's a real sign of someone who like i mean he is obviously displayed many times over this season his confidence and and obviously many times in his career um but the way that he he does allow himself to have these uh these small moments that you can work into scenes that are in, in a lot of ways uh significant because this is uh, th- I think it's really something to be said for the fact that Cooper's life is saved because of uh, a dream, because like someone, because of Bradley Mitchum acting in the way that Cooper from the original run would act in taking his dream very seriously and following his intuition and letting that sort of guide him, and that's what uh, that's what saves Dougie from getting from getting executed here in the desert which I think is really interesting. And like, and the fact that they used like this improvisational cut scene to, uh, to lend credence to his dream, I think is, it's just awesome. And, and, and it's not like forced. It's not, it, it doesn't like if I, like I had no idea that the, that uh, until you told me on, on the last episode that the, the cut on, um, whatever the actor's name is on his face uh, was from a real life incident. Like I, I just thought that it was just like a really interesting, like I thought that it was uh, set up exactly for this moment, which is just, it's, it's purely masterful, but I, I, I have, uh, I wonder in my own head if, if Mike has something to do with these dreams um, that characters seem to have, because Mike is the one who is, sort of talking directly to Cooper when Cooper has his dream and then Mike leads Dougie into the the bakery where he buys the cherry pie which is obviously the subject of the dream mm-hmm. so i wonder if there is some like uh if like dreams are sort of where those our worlds sort of intersect and we can be communicated to or communicate with these otherworldly entities uh which is could even again speak to Lynch's creative process and how he, you know, a dream is really just like a subconscious state. So he is all about sort of exploring that uh, your consciousness and try to drawing from the draw from that well for and letting it sort of uh, flourish with creative ideas. So I think there's this is this whole sequence is. Um, among my favorite to watch just because of how how it plays out and i think it's very well acted as well i can't like forget mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. it really it really is all the reactions all of the um the interplay between the mitchum brothers it's it's really really good yeah this is probably jim belushi's finest moment here right? like ever well i mean i haven't seen everything jim belushi <laughs> has ever done but at the very least, in this show, this has got to be my favorite stuff from him, without a doubt. I love yeah. his delivery 
all throughout this scene here. The way that he grabs his brother and says, if he has this one certain thing, just with this real sense of urgency, but also this real sense of camp as well. Like Mm -hmm. Jim Belushi seems to really ride that line very well. Um, And I also love the way that (laughs) when he finds the cherry pie in there, he he sort of points to the box and he goes cherry pie <laughs> yep um it's yeah beautiful. jim belushi again just a delightful surprise as bradley mitchum in this season of twin peaks and yeah really fantastic love this whole scene in the desert definitely one of my favorite scenes in the show and i love how once they find the $30 million check from Dougie, again, just more great acting from Jim Belushi here. His knees do a little wobble. Oh, yeah. Like he yep. sees the check and he sort of gets a little woozy. And then he just g- giddily walks up to his brother, the way that he holds out the check and sort of struts towards him. And then just starts howling like a wolf. It's very, very yeah. good. It, All of it, it, is it was just, like... It was one of those scenes that really made me put myself in the character's shoes and like, how would I act if I just got $30 million? And it would be like, yeah, a little weak in the knees and then you're very cool for about five seconds and then you totally lose your shit. Yeah. I'd be howling too. Hell yeah. Howling at the moon. So Dougie, Dougie is now the hero. This is the point in the season at which the, the brothers mitchum take a turn from being these benevolent gangsters or malevolent gangsters rather to being this uh charming helpful force for good in dougie's life and they are just looking to help out dougie in any way possible from here on out it's a delightful turn for these characters i feel yeah and it 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 fully completes their their evolution from like you said, they're they're sort of a malevolent force when we first meet them, and then they start becoming more and more likable, but are still enemies of of our uh, our hero character, or our main character. And then this is their full turn towards uh, the good side, if you will. But I I think that they are they're to, they're they're in a sense like redeemed characters in some way for how their gratitude that they show like the uh toward dougie like like they just i mean in the end of the day he just delivered them this check he didn't give them 30 million of his dollars but they are so grateful and and happy that they are going to go well out of their way to help douglas jones with whatever it is he needs help with Mm-hmm. yeah and he, uh as cooper will say later they have hearts of gold so mm-hmm they take Dougie out to a restaurant in a fit of celebration. Some some pretty nice upscale restaurant. And we cut in to a conversation here of Roddy saying, you mean to tell me your kid doesn't have a gym set? Because, of course, Dougie had surely just gone on a long, eloquent soliloquy about how unfortunate it was that Sonny Jim did not own a gym set. I think that's, <laughs> we can assume that that's why this scene opens that way. 
Yes, very um, clearly. Yes. Dougie hears something going on with the piano player and is totally transfixed by it. What he's hearing is a new Angelo Badalamenti composition called Heartbreaking. Just sort of um, a light, lilting, sort of um, melancholy tune. And I gotta say, this moment where Dougie looks up and the camera just sort of does a um, a minor push-in on his face as he's hearing this, this, more than any other moment during this season, really got to me in terms of holy shit is that is that cooper just the look that he gives him just this look of of awareness and, and awakening it seemed like to me like really yeah it made it made my heart stop for just a brief second i gotta say yeah it, i think we're intentionally getting these sprinklings uh that like these stares or these these long shots lingering on dougie mm-hmm. where you're like oh my god is it about to happen um and I think that this this season really does a fantastic job in retrospect of teasing it. And I think the first go around it seemed really, really unbearable. But going through it now and seeing just you know just where like the intentional teases are placed, it's pretty well done. And there's not too many uh moments like this where you're really like convinced it's about to happen. It's among probably like three or four, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. And there's actually a similar moment later in the scene uh, when he's eating a cherry pie and he goes, damn good. And he Mm -hmm. sort of looks off to the side for a second. Almost this moment of recognition, like, hey, I've said that before. I don't know. It's they're uh, they're having a little more fun with you in this scene that they do uh, in most scenes in uh, in the uh, the Dougie Cooper teasing uh, uh, regard. Yeah, and it, it works along with a lot of the other scenes too, with the log lady mentioning that uh like the cycle is almost complete. Um you know, like it's 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 evident that Cooper is getting closer and closer towards waking up and we're starting to see the same signs now with more frequency and at, I don't know, I I wasn't sure like ever watching it the first time through when exactly Cooper was going to wake up because I, I I got pretty good at curbing my expectations and grew to love Dougie so much that um, I, I, I just enjoyed I enjoyed Dougie and it wasn't Dougie wasn't just a means for me to get to Cooper. It was now its own sort of weird, crazy thing that I was into. And now mm-hmm. this this now that he was like it, again it'll, going back to being there it's just like this this character just gets he gets a uh, 30 million dollars stuffed in his front pocket he gets an otherworldly entity uh beckoning him to buy a cherry pie and somehow that culminates in him uh having this very lavish luxurious night out with these uh millionaire gangsters uh or casino owners we'll say uh it was it's 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 funny and it's it was a a great way i think to end this episode too because it didn't end on a uh it didn't end on like a zinger like so many of these did it 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 kind of makes you think a little bit about what's going to happen next it's kind of it, it kind of did seem like a bit of an open book at this point mm-hmm. yeah for sure <clears throat> just a couple other things to mention about this scene 
we get reunited with the old woman from the casino oh, who yeah. Dougie helped out by pointing out to her which levers to, to pull uh, to get the jackpots. She recognizes him as Mr. Jackpots, which I love. Yeah, she has names. apparently turned her, her whole life around. And her son, Denver, is with her. Well, of course, uh, Denver. Denver, her totally son. Totally normal name. Her son, Denver. Just a <laughs> a name that is a normal human name that people have. He <laughs> is talking to her again. She has a house. She has a dog, I believe she mentions. And even though this is totally absurd and from a character that we only briefly saw very long ago in the season, I found this pretty touching, actually. I, I loved I, it. Yeah, I yeah, did too. Yeah, the way Dougie... One thing that I'm just really fascinated by this season is the degree to which Dougie is completely passive yet seemingly dictating all the action and i just love the fact that just by being dougie he manages to help people you know he's uh helped this old lady turn her life around uh you know he's gotten the uh the mitchin brothers the money that they're owed he's just he's everybody's best friend and uh he's my friend too yeah, he's he's a force of good that is really is an effective counterpoint to Mr. C. Whereas Mr. C is ultra active, is has his fingers in everything, is sort of taking charge and taking control for, as a force of evil. We have the polar opposite of Dougie Jones, who is just wading through life like uh, barely functioning and still manages to do all this good. Another thing that I thought was cool about this is it sort of shows a little bit of how much time has passed since the beginning of the show where that woman was sort of a decrepit old old lady and then came into her own with all this money that she won and now has reconciled with her son. So, I don't know how long that takes, but she yeah. seemed like <laughs> she seemed like she was pretty pretty far from where she was. So I don't know if that means that it's been I don't know. I I never really thought about that like how how much time passes between the beginning of, you know, when we first see Dougie and then from when he turns back into Cooper, but I thought that was a little uh a interesting little indicator that some time has passed at least. Yeah, that is odd. I never really considered the timeline of this. She seems to have turned her life around and uh, mended fences extremely quickly. If yeah, like in the a month. established timeline of the show is to be believed, but I don't, I don't, I don't know. Okay, it's <laughs> fine. Yeah, that's an, yeah, that's hardly what I'm gonna uh, hang my hat on for this yeah. episode. It's fine with me. And last thing here, Candy, she's still like borderline catatonic. She's still <laughs> in sort of a an unresponsive stupor. Uh, from the guilt associated with hitting Rodney Mitchum in the head with a remote control. <laughs> and uh, she's just thinking about the traffic on the strip. And there's just so many cars. Yeah, she should talk to that lady from Twin Peaks about traffic. 
They could probably yeah. have a real a nice fruitful conversation. Yeah. Candy remains uh barely present and yet still somehow weirdly magnetic and resonant. It's a very odd way to to portray a character, but one that I really enjoy. Yeah, she's she's definitely one of the more unique enjoyable characters on the show for sure yeah i just yeah i love pretty much every single candy scene and it's really hard to articulate why but i i really do so yeah that does it this episode ends uh with the shot of the piano player which you know it's a shame they couldn't have gotten angelo battlemente to do this i Uh, I was expecting it yeah uh, you know, if he could be in Moholland Drive, you would think he could be in this. But, um, yeah, like you said, just just a fantastic episode. You know, just the one really, really good, solid scene after another. Like they're, I mean, it's just straight bangers here. Yeah, and there's there's a considerable like amount of length to each of these scenes. Like there's not, um it's not like some of the episodes where we're cutting in and out of, of certain things. And then we get uh 15 seconds of Jerry horn screaming in the woods and then back to this thing. It's like, we get time with each little individual story that I think uh, they each get some time to flesh out. And, they, and a lot of the things on the show do feel like kind of vignettes that we get piece by piece. And, some of them connect and some of them don't but this episode really i think that it had a lot of payoff for if even if like people were frustrated with certain aspects of the show an episode like this really kind of rewards you for staying invested in these characters for this long because we're we're entering into the back half of the season we're beyond uh, we're two episodes beyond the halfway point it's sort of a lot of things are a lot of gloves are coming off, which I I really like, and we're getting some of some of these really um, some pristine moments, like like he's dead. Um, just a, a, a I'll I'll remember that scene. Like whenever anyone asks me about Twin Peaks season three, that's going to be one of the scenes that I that I remember the most, and one of the lines that I remember the most. Uh, it's it this episode is just filled with little moments like that that are very, very central to why I really love the show so much. Oh, yeah. I would say the double R scene, the scene at the zone, and the uh, cherry pie scene in the desert are really, truly top-tier scenes in the season. Like, Yeah, don't get too much better than that. Yeah, they're all way up there, so... Yeah, great episode. Um, so yeah, that's going to do it for us. Um, you know, if you're listening to the show and you're enjoying it, one way that you could really help us out is to give us a rate and review on iTunes because the more people do that, uh, the more people will discover the show. That's just kind of how it works uh, with, with iTunes and all that, so... If you're enjoying the show, we would very much appreciate it. Like we mentioned before, you can write into us 
at 119podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at 119podcast. You can find me, Nick, at strenuousorb. And you can find Dylan at piffdylan. And uh, so, yeah, thanks again for listening to this episode. And uh, we hope you will listen to part 12. Thanks a lot, guys. See you.